everyone. Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Bryn. I'm going to try my best to sound like myself today because I am feeling a little bit under the weather, but I will make it through. I finally, for everyone who's been listening for a while now, finished The Walking Dead. And I must say that I cried the entire series finale, pretty much, except for maybe 10 minutes of it, the first 10 minutes. But it was so good and I cannot wait for more. Aside from that, I don't think I have any recommendations. I recently started Gilmore Girls. I don't know what intrigued me to do that, but I did. I briefly watched it when I was younger, but never was really into it. And I'm loving it so far. And aside from that, I don't really have any recommendations for you guys this week. So I'm going to jump right into my coffee review. I have so much coffee in my house right now, but sadly, I have reviewed every single thing I have in my house right now, and I have no fresh bags from the amazing coffee companies that send Crime Colts and Coffee their coffee, so I am reviewing a Dunkin' Coffee today, and bear with me because I know I randomly do this. But I know some people also like it because a lot of people stop at Dunkin' for quick fixes or maybe don't order bags from local coffee shops or roasters that often. So the coffee that I'm reviewing today from Dunkin' is a mocha cold brew with cold foam and oat milk. I have to say I do get this coffee somewhat frequently, especially when there's not a special edition coffee especially at cold brew, happening at Dunkin'. Everyone knows that I love my brown sugar cold brew and I loved my cookie butter cold brew and both are gone. So right now I'm pretty much ordering the mocha when I do order a cold brew with cold foam because I like the taste of that one. But it's not the best that Dunkin' has to offer. I guess at the moment it kind of is in my eyes. But I would have to say it also depends on who's making this cold brew and how it's made, how much mocha is put into it, because on some days they tend to skimp a little bit, (laughs) and today was slightly one of them. I feel like I can give an overall review of this coffee, though, because I get it pretty often. I would have to say that it has a chocolatey taste to it, obviously, because of the mocha. The oat milk makes it a little bit creamy, and then because it's a cold brew, it's on the stronger side, and the cold foam, everyone who listens also knows I love my cold foam. If you, especially if you let it settle into the drink, it really gives a little bit of sweetness to it and an added creaminess to it. So for a Dunkin' Coffee... And for a coffee that's not really an extravagant flavor or super creative flavor, Dunkin'-wise, I would have to rate this coffee probably around a 7, to be fair. So yeah, give it a try if you'd like. Maybe on your next trip to Dunkin', try this one and let me know what you think. So without further ado, I guess I will get into today's episode. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. Today's case is about the Bender family, aka the Bloody Benders. A little bit of background about the Bender family. 
They lived in Labette County, Kansas, about seven miles northeast of Cherryvale. The family was made up of John Bender, who was the father, Elvira Bender, the mother, also known as Almira, but I will be referring to her as Elvira for the duration of the story. There was also John Jr., who was the son, and Kate, who was the daughter. Popular retelling states Kate as the daughter of John and Elvira and sister of John Jr., but there are also contemporary newspapers reporting neighbors as saying that John Jr. and Kate were actually married. So deferring information there and or incestual relationships within the family, but we'll get a little more into that as well as we get further into their story. A lot of legend surrounds the Bender family, and their story took place around 150 years ago, so it's sometimes hard to separate fact versus fiction. They were believed to be immigrants from Germany, and this is a quote from Wiki, quote, No documentation or definitive proof of their relationships to one another or where they were born has ever been found. In October 1870, five families acquired land around Osage, Kansas. This was in northwestern Labette County, and one of the families was the Bender family. They registered 160 acres of land, and it was located directly on the Osage Mission Independence Trail that went from Independence to Fort Scott. John and John Jr. built a barn with a corral and a cabin on the property. In fall of 1871, Elvira and Kate arrived to their new home. A two-acre vegetable garden and apple orchard were planted by the women. The cabin was separated into two rooms using a canvas wagon cover, and the room in the back was the family's living space, while the front and larger part of the house was made into a quote-unquote general store. This general store had a kitchen and table as well, not only for the family, but so travelers could stop to eat or rest. So they kind of made it into like a bed and breakfast if need be, or a little just rest stop for travelers. The family also sold dry goods in the store, and John Jr. and Kate would frequently attend Sunday school in Harmony Grove. So a little bit more about each family member. John Bender, who was the father, was around 60 years old. He was over six feet tall with big bushy brows, and there are a lot of reports talking about his eyebrows and how defining they were. He spoke very little English, and in an article from the Emporia News from May 23, 1973, he was mentioned as William Bender. I never heard of John being a nickname for William, so not sure if this was an error, if he went by John, like a middle name or something, or if this is another error within the passing of time. Either way, I will be referring to him as John throughout this episode, as pretty much everything referred to him as John. And he was believed to have either been born in Germany, the Netherlands, or Norway. Allegedly, he may have also been born as John Flickinger. Again, there is no documentation to either confirm or deny this. 
Moving on to Elvira Bender, who was the mother. She was 55 years old, and contemporary newspapers note her as being born as Elmira Hill Mark, sometimes also written as Elmira Hill Mike or Meek, spelled M-E-I-K. They also mentioned her being born in the Adirondacks, which is in northeastern New York. And she also spoke very little English, just like John. Neighbors referred to her as quote-unquote she-devil because of allegedly how mean and unfriendly she was. Prior to being married to John Bender, she married Simon Mark. Allegedly, she had 12 children with him. She had also been married to a man named Stephen Griffith. Rumors surrounded Elvira regarding past husbands. Allegedly, she was thought to have murdered multiple of them. However, this was never proven. John Bender Jr., who was the son, was around 25 years old. He had auburn hair, a mustache, was described as being good-looking, spoke fluent English but had a German accent, and according to crime reads, he could have actually been named John Gebhardt. He was described as a quote-unquote half-wit by some people because he would randomly laugh at whatever. So I wonder, when I read this, I'm like, I wonder how many people interpret me as that throughout my life with my laughing in awkward situations. And I absolutely hate this guy and I'm not defending him at any point except for right now because people might randomly laugh for many reasons. Maybe they have nervous laughter, laugh in an awkward situation, have random laughter due to a mental illness, or excuse me if it's a crime to just be fucking happy, but although all of these things could have been true, as we'll get into it, he may have been laughing for more sinister reasons, but honestly, who really knows? Either way, I just thought it was fucking rude that people referred to him as a half-wit just because he would randomly laugh. Moving on to Kate Bender, who was the sister. She was around 23 years old, also described as being good-looking, and also spoke English but with an accent. She was a quote-unquote self-proclaimed healer and psychic, and she advertised her set abilities through flyers. She would have seances and also became known for being an advocate for free love, which was very ahead of her time, so some people were extremely put off to her due to that. She also gave lectures on spiritualism, and her abilities and beliefs brought a lot of traction to the vendor's store and home. So even though there were some people who were interested in what she was doing because... Maybe they wanted to know more about spiritualism or wanted to experience a seance. There were also people being drawn there out of curiosity, but in a negative way towards her. May 1871, a body was discovered in Drum Creek, Kansas, and it was a man named Jones. His skull had been crushed and his throat was also cut. Winter 1872, George Newton Longcore and his baby Marianne disappeared. They had left Independence, Kansas to move to Iowa. 
February 1872, two more bodies were found. They were both men and had the same injuries as Jones did. By 1873, travelers began to avoid this area and the trail passing through it. It was known for quote-unquote horse thieves and villains. There were reports of many people that had gone missing while passing through, and it was suspected that some of these thieves could have been involved in the disappearances. Some were arrested, but later released or forced out of the county. Spring 1873, Dr. William Henry York went looking for George Newton Longcore, remember, who was the man who had disappeared with his infant daughter. He had been their neighbor, and he had reached Fort Scott and began his journey back to Independence, Kansas on March 9th. But then he too disappeared. A full-blown search was put into action for Dr. William Henry York. It was led by his two brothers, Ed York and Colonel Alexander M. York. Colonel York led a group of around 50 men to look for William. They questioned travelers and visited homesteads all along the trail. March 28, 1873, Colonel York and a man named Mr. Johnson arrived at the Bender's Inn. They questioned the benders about seeing William, and when they did so, the benders actually said William had stayed with them, and they also then suggested that he could have run into some trouble with indigenous people in the area. This is a fucking claim and a half to pull out of one's ass, but sadly, welcome to the history of mistreating and putting blame on innocent indigenous people and minorities. Moving on, Colonel York then stayed for dinner. April 3rd, 1873, Colonel York went back to Bender's Inn with armed men. He had been told that a woman had been threatened by Elvira Bender with knives. The Bender children denied this, and Elvira allegedly could not initially understand what was being asked of her. After repeatedly asking, allegedly, again, Elvira became enraged and suddenly understood what was being asked because she now had an answer. She said that the woman was a witch and had cursed her coffee. She also demanded that all the men leave the inn immediately. So that was kind of interesting and noted in articles as being somewhat of a turning point where people were like, does she actually understand? And can she actually speak more fluently than she leads on? Kate then told Colonel York to come back alone the following Friday. She said she would use her gifts to help find his brother William. Around the same time, a meeting was set up by Osage Township to discuss the disappearances, because obviously this was all becoming a major concern, not only within their county, but within the surrounding counties. This took place in Harmony Grove Schoolhouse, and 75 members attended, including Colonel York, John Bender, and John Bender Jr. It was decided that a warrant would be obtained to search every homestead between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek, Kansas. Three days after the meeting, a man named Billy Toll, who was a neighbor of the Benders, was passing the Bender Inn. 
He noticed that the animals hadn't been fed and that the inn looked abandoned. This was reported by Toll to Leroy F. Dick, the township trustee, but even so, a couple more days passed before anyone could get to the house to investigate. This lapse was due to bad weather. So a search party was formed and they were to go to the Bender homestead. It was made up of a couple hundred people, including Colonel York. At the Bender Inn, it had been cleared of all the Bender's personal items, clothing, and food once this search party arrived. There was also a foul odor coming from a trapdoor that had been nailed shut under a bed. This trapdoor contained a room that was 6 feet or 1.8 meters deep, 7 feet or 2.1 meters square at the top, and 3 feet or 0.9 meters square at the bottom. The room was empty, but clotted blood was on the slab floor, and this floor was then broken apart by sledgehammers for fear that a body could be underneath. But nothing was found. The cabin itself was also physically moved by the men. Yes, I said physically moved by the men, so that they could dig underneath it to continue their search. Again, nothing was found. The men also used a metal rod to then probe the ground around the cabin. They noticed the soil was disturbed in the vegetable garden and orchard, so naturally they checked there as well. Later that night, a body was found. It was Dr. William Henry York. He was face down in a shallow grave, and his feet were barely below the surface. By midnight, the men had marked another nine suspected grave sites. They decided to call it a night and would resume in the morning. Upon digging the next morning, seven of the nine suspected graves contained eight bodies. So including William, they had found nine bodies so far. But... It wasn't over. The men then found another body in the well. Also in the well were body parts, which is so beyond disturbing. This entire thing is just so beyond disturbing. Even more disturbing, all of the victims were described as being quote-unquote indecently mutilated. Every person except for one had their throats cut, and their heads had been bashed by a hammer. A woman was also found, and a young girl's body had also been found. It was not specified whether she was included in the count that had been in the suspected graves, but this young girl was George Newton Longcore's daughter, Marianne. There were no injuries on her that would have caused her death, There were, however, contradictions in some articles that she had some visible injuries versus she had no visible injuries at all, but either way, it was said that none that were visible would have caused her death. Therefore, it was suspected that she had either been buried alive or strangled. And all I have to say is that poor baby. That literally breaks my heart. I want, I'm about to cry right now. So the Bender's suspected method, this method was supported by some of the people who had escaped the Bender's madness. 
It was thought that the benders would have the quote-unquote guest of honor sit in a special seat. This seat would have been placed over the trapdoor over the cellar. Their back would have also been against the curtain that separated the home, and it was believed that Kate would then distract the guest, maybe with some kind of conversation regarding her abilities or the free love that she believed in, and then John or John Jr. would then sneak out from behind the curtain and hit the guest in the head with a hammer. Kate or Elvira would then slit their throat and the body would go through the trap door. Very Sweeney Todd, and I'm actually wondering if they based some of their choices around that, as that character, Sweeney Todd, was first introduced in 1846. So, around the same time frame, like within 25, 30 years of that happening, give or take, they would later strip the body and bury him or her on the property. So that's the whole suspected method that the benders use to lure and murder their victims. Moving on to the aftermath, the community and the search party that had found these bodies were not only terrified and horrified, but absolutely enraged. Word spread quickly far and wide, and more than 3,000 people, some as far as New York City and Chicago, traveled to visit the Bender homestead. Quote-unquote souvenir hunters took everything, which is pretty fucking gross, and this included bricks from the cellar and even stones that lined the well which kind of reminded me of the Lizzie Borden house and how it was horrifically memorialized into this museum where people can pose on the couch where someone was murdered and the items are just like souvenirs. That just absolutely disgusts me. How someone can take bricks and stones that someone was found murdered in or that someone's blood was on is beyond my my scope of thinking. I just don't even understand it. So, because of this and these souvenir hunters, the entire cabin was destroyed. Before that had happened, though, a Roman Catholic prayer book had been found in the cabin. It had notes scribbled in German in it, which were translated. So, some of the notes that were translated were Johanna Bender, born July 30th, 1848, which is very interesting, and there's some theories surrounding that, that that could have potentially been a child of John Jr. and Kate, or another child of John and Elvira. That story surrounding John Jr. and Kate was that they murdered the baby, but who knows if that's true. Another translation was quote-unquote, John Gebhardt came to America on July 1st, 18, question, question, because I guess they couldn't make out 18 what. So, that also ties into John Jr.'s name potentially being John Gebhardt, which also makes me think, if all these people had all different names, were any of them actually fucking related, or did they just pose as this family and mass-murdered people? Another translation was 
quote-unquote, big slaughter day, Jan 8th. And another one was hell departed. Aside from the prayer book, more than a dozen bullet holes had also been found in the roof and sides of the cabin. This drew speculation that some victims had tried to fight back. Weapons were also found in the home, some with dried blood on them. So where were the benders? Meanwhile, the Bender family was on the run and missing in action. A $1,000 reward was put up for their arrest. This would be around $22,600 as of 2023. And on May 17, 1873, the Kansas governor offered $2,000, which would be around $45,000 to $50,000 as of 2023. Detectives have followed wagon tracks and found the Bender's wagon 12 miles or 19 kilometers north of their inn. They had abandoned it along with their horses, as if they couldn't get any shittier They had just left their horses to starve. They then found that the benders had bought train tickets. These were bought on the Leavenworth, Lawrence, and Galveston Railroad for Humboldt. John Jr. and Kate had disembarked the train in Chanute, Kansas, and hopped on the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad South. They had then disembarked again in Red River County, Texas, and went on to, quote-unquote, an outlaw colony. This was said to be in a region between Texas and New Mexico, and due to the area they went to, this outlaw colony, they were not followed any further because it was said that basically if detectives or whoever were to enter this area, most of the time they didn't come back. Meanwhile, John Sr. and Elvira had stayed on the original train and went north to Kansas City. Allegedly, they then potentially bought tickets for St. Louis, Missouri. The search for the Bender family remained, and this was on and off for the following 50 years. So, were they ever captured? Good question. There are a lot of rumors and claims that surround the alleged capture of the Benders. Some say that vigilantes caught and killed them. Others say the Benders were killed during a gunfight and buried in the prairie. Sometimes women traveling together would be accused of being the Bender women. One detective claimed that he had found John Jr. had died of a stroke and So basically, there were so many different stories, and if you look into the resources I provided or even you're on your own online, you're going to read all these different details stories. They were just so long to include the full details, but that was just basically a summary of what was said there. There was also a newspaper clipping about the Bender family published August 12th, 1880, that stated that the two older benders had been caught in Nebraska and would be sent back to Kansas for trial. But nothing more was posted or found in articles aside from that, which was really confusing and contradicting to everything else that I read. So I don't know where the hell that came from or 
if it was misprinted or if it was just assumed to be them and then turned out not to be, there was really no further explanation regarding that news article. In 1884, two stories surrounded John Sr. It was said that a John Flickinger committed suicide in Lake Michigan. So remember, John Sr. could have allegedly been born as John Flickinger. A man that matched John Sr.'s description was also arrested in 1884 in Montana. He had been arrested for a murder that happened near Salmon, Idaho. The victim had been hit in the head with a hammer, so definitely matching the way that the Bender family had murdered their victims. This suspect, thought to be John, severed his own foot to get out of his leg irons as he was being held in prison. He bled to death. And not only that, he was unable to be properly identified because by the time a deputy arrived from Kansas to potentially identify this man as John, the body was too decomposed to identify him. So... Along with this man, until 1920, this man who was not actually identified as John, his skull was then displayed as quote-unquote Pa Bender in a saloon in Salmon, Idaho. And when the saloon closed, the skull disappeared. So we don't even have this skull anymore to do potential DNA testing on. I don't even know how they would do that, though, because they probably don't have any form of DNA tied to John Bender, and they don't even know if there's relatives tied to John Bender, but who knows with the technology we have these days if they'd be able to do some family trace back to him or something. Another story that evolved was that the Bender family was one and the same as the Kelly family. The Kelly family was also a family of serial killers. And they were located in a town near Kansas and committed their crimes between August and December of 1887. Moving on to some arrests, even though the Benders were not arrested, as far as we know anyway, some others were in connection to the Bender Inn murders. Twelve men to be exact. They all had gotten rid of stolen goods from the Bender's victims. Some of these men were Addison Roach and his son-in-law, William Buxton, a man named Brockman, who was a friend of the Bender's, and a man named Mitt Cherry. In 1889, two women, Mrs. Elmira Monroe, a.k.a. Mrs. Elmira Griffith, and Mrs. Sarah Eliza Davis had also been arrested. They had been accused of being Elvira and Kate Bender. Long story short, because it is a very long, intricate story, they were really shitty people, but they were released, and many people were doubtful that they were actually the Benders. So... I want to do things a little differently this week and end this episode with naming the known victims of these horrendous individuals and when their lives were tragically taken. 
So starting in May of 1871, their first known victim was Mr. Jones. February 1872, there were two unidentified men found on the prairie. December 1872 was Ben Brown from Howard County, Kansas. December 1872, there was also a man named W.F. McCrotty, COD 123rd, 3rd Infantry. December 1872, Henry McKenzie, he was relocating to Independence from Hamilton County, Indiana. December 1872, Johnny Boyle from Howard County, Kansas. December 1872, George Newton Longcore and his 18-month-old daughter, Marianne. Just a little side note about George Newton Longcore and Marianne. Contemporary newspapers reported his name as either, quote-unquote, George W. Longcore or, quote-unquote, George Launcher, L-O-N-C-H-E-R, while Marianne is similarly reported as being either 8 years old or 18 months old. So there is discrepancies with information regarding both of those people. December 1872, John Greary. December 1872, Red Smith. December 1872, Abigail Roberts. December 1872, various body parts. And this is a quote from Wiki. Quote, the parts did not belong to any of the other victims found and are believed to belong to at least three additional victims. December 1872, during the search, the bodies of four unidentified males were found in Drum Creek and the surrounding area. All four had crushed skulls and throats cut. One may have been Jack Bogart, who went missing in 1872. May 1873, Dr. William York. And including the recovered body parts, it's speculated that the benders took the lives of more than 20 victims. And as far as we know, they have never been caught. Had never been caught, but because by now, they're bye-byes. Thank God. So... That is the end of today's episode. I hope that I covered it well. I did the best I could, especially from it, it being from so long ago and the contradicting information that's online with contemporary versions versus versions from the past and fact versus fiction because of how long ago it was and also just legends and tales evolving and people adding their own details to make a horrific story, quote-unquote, more interesting, which is horrifying in itself. Regardless, the tragedy in all of this is that real lives were lost, and this really did happen horrifically to so many people who were just traveling and or moving to find a better life, and they stumbled across this inn that they thought would be a safe space to maybe rest for the night or to get some food and they were met by these absolutely horrifying people and no matter the time period as always on crime cults and coffee the stories of the victims are who matter and that is why 
I'm doing this podcast whatsoever. So, everyone now knows the story of the victims that were mentioned at the end of this episode. Not the full story, but as much as we can give here. So, before we end today's episode, I do have a listener story that was sent in that I'm going to read verbatim. This is from Nicole. For those who have listened before, this is a long overdue continuation. For those who do not know, these stories take place in a now-religious retreat center that had once been a boarding school. From the ages of 5 to 18, my siblings and I roamed the many acres, the small lake, and the many abandoned and neglected buildings, one of which was the gym, which was home to what we referred to as the Shadow Man. Years after having seen the Shadow Man for the first time, the school was eventually cleaned out, library books donated, the out-of-date computers thrown away, and organs were cleared from the science room. Other than the lockers and chalkboards, any remains of the school were cleared away. However, Shadow Man was not one of the things taken from that place. When the new administration had come through and cleaned out his things, he was not happy causing minor mishaps at first, but then they began to escalate to minor injuries to visitors, minor breaks in equipment, and eventually caused the water fountain to explode, shooting water up towards the ceiling and across the hallway, leaving a water stain that remained for years after. Oh my god. At this point, I would not go into the gym unless I had someone with me, knowing full well he still may manifest, but was less likely to. He never seemed to care much for me, which I should consider myself lucky. I supposed at this point I was too enamored with the teachings of the church that my then love of Christ was too strong. After years of minor havoc, he made a move. During the biggest social and religious event of the year, he did decide to strike. A woman who was visiting that, quote, had a seedy past, as she was deemed by the gossiping pastor's wives, had decided to join a friend in looking for quote-unquote redemption. During the game night when the volleyball game was in full swing, something decided to take advantage of the audience. What happened next, I would never forget. My best friend, her sister, and I were coming in from dinner excited to see the game going on. When we walked in, it started. Ooh, I have the chills already! Out of nowhere, the most inhuman scream erupted from the middle of the volleyball court. The crowd started to move and chaos broke out. Stunned, we stood confused as to what happened. My friends and I stood paralyzed by the sound. Unmoving and in shock, we watched the backs of those much taller than us with occasional glimmers of shaky and jagged limbs going in odd directions. From the crowd burst through my best friend's mom rushing towards us, swooping the youngest over her shoulder and grabbing my best friend and I by the wrists to rush out of the gym. All the while, I'm hearing again and again a scream not of this earth. The rest of this story is how my sister and father tell it, as I was thankfully taken out of the situation. She, however, was on the same team and saw the whole thing. My father was on security duty that night and is not one to sit idly by. He began rounding all the pastors in the vicinity and asked who had never encountered such a thing before. 
A few younger pastors said they had not, and he asked how secure they were in their religion. According to my father, who had seen a possession before, a demon can possess a person if they waver an inch in their faith, and due to the size of the crowd, that was a risk he was not willing to take. With the few that remained, they began a prayer circle for the woman who was lying on the ground, screaming the inhuman scream, arching her back and contouring in a way that should not be humanly possible. Oh my fucking god. I feel like I'm gonna throw up. (sighs) Okay. People were standing in silence, whether it were fear, intrigue, or otherwise. The crowd did not move an inch. Dead silent except for the prayers and the woman. After what must have felt like an eternity, she went limp. They moved her unconscious body to the nurse's station until the ambulance arrived. Oh my god, the fact that she fell unconscious after. She was taken away, but I never knew what became of her. All I know is what went into her. Shadow Man's presence disappeared that day. He made a point and made it well. I never really feel secure in that gym, walking alone, but never again have I felt that pure dread of that first encounter in the hallway. Holy shit. Oh my god. Wow. Everyone who listens and those who are just listening for the first time and hearing a listener story for the first time knows or are now learning that I do not read these beforehand. I am just as <laughs> creeped out and shocked as you are. Wow, Nicole, first of all, thank you so much for sending that in. Second of all, thank you so much for the descriptions and the vivid detail and how you wrote this. It was so insane and I could picture the whole thing in my head. I am going to have nightmares tonight of this woman screaming and all contorted. I'm freaked the fuck out. I think I will end the episode on that note. Thank you for sending this in though. I love stories (laughs) and creepy stories. Yes, we love those here on Crime Cults and Coffee. Continue to send them in. I'm just a little creeped out at the moment. I do not do well with demonic presence or dark forces, so let's get into the spiel. You can find Crime Cults and Coffee on Instagram where I post pics of the coffee reviewed and the episodes for that week. We have the highlights tab you can always go back and look at. The link tree is in the bio as well that has all the listening platforms that we're on. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. You can also follow Crime Cults and Coffee on Facebook. That's where I put our resources, photos, links, call to action, anything connected to this week's episode. And as I mentioned last week, I'm a tiny bit behind right now just because of catching up with everything in the past couple weeks since Kelsey left, but I will be sure to get on that. If you have a listener story like Nicole's creepy as fuck one with the shadow man or a case suggestion, send them my way. Email me at crimecoltsandcoffee at gmail.com or DM me at crimecoltsandcoffee on Instagram. I love getting listener stories and case suggestions from you all and I love interacting with you all. It warms my heart every time. And reading these stories on the podcast, using this as your platform as well, is just an amazing thing. Aside from that, 
If you enjoy the podcast, you can also leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, any listening platform that allows you to do so. And if you can't leave a rate and review or really don't want to, you can like, you can follow, you can subscribe on any listening platform of your choice, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. And until then, stay the fuck away from the shadow man. Also a no-no to the demons and dark forces. Say bye to them. And I can't wait to talk to your hopefully smiling faces next week. Love you. Bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook